I am indeed a very plain man, John Ledyard wrote from London prior to setting out for St. Petersburg. Quote, but do not think that mountains or oceans shall oppose my passage to glory while I have such friends in remembrance. End quote. A new friend of his, according to Jared Sparks, a Mr. William Brown, a Scottish physician, was traveling in the employ of the Queen to Kulivan. Welcome to Expeditions, a podcast around Lewis and Clark. We explore the history and historiography of the expedition one day at a time. We are everywhere at Expeditions Pod, social media, Patreon if you want to support the show, as well as our website. You are currently in Mile Marker 2, episode Across Siberia. They left St. Petersburg at the start of June 1787 toward Moscow, hiring a kibitka, essentially a large covered carriage driven by three horses in this case. From Moscow, they headed due east toward Kazan at the confluence of the Volga and Kazanka rivers. After a week, they pushed further over the Urals and past the modern European notion of the dividing line of Europe and Asia toward Toblosk. Fairly predictably, Ledyard writes, quote, the wretched appearance of the inhabitants is such as may generally be observed in a greater or less degree in these places, which are so unhappy as to be the frontiers between nations, like stepchildren they are. End quote. Toblosk, a historic capital of the Siberian region, had seen its influence wane over the course of the 18th century. Five years before Ledyard rode through, the gigantic Siberian governate, which had administered the Tsar's will east of the Urals, was officially abolished after being picked apart almost since its inception. Effectively a border town, the city was home to Russians' exiled political dissidents, a development that would last through the Soviet era and even into today. From Toblosk, Ledyard and Brown continued to Barnall on the western side of the Ob River. The town began as a silver mining town, incorporated into the Russian Empire three decades before the pair arrived. After bidding farewell to Mr. Brown, ending their 3,000-mile partnership, Ledyard lodged at the city treasurer's home and dined with the area's elite, the Galaxy of Barnall, as Ledyard referred to them. Quote, I am a curiosity here myself, he would write Thomas Jefferson. Those who have heard of America flock around to see me. Unfortunately, the marks on my hands, the tattoos, procure me and my countrymen the appellation of wild men. End quote. After toasts to Franklin and Washington, the realization of the solitary road surely became more and more real. While not in Russia to conduct ethnography, as well as any other discipline that might fall under the natural sciences label of the Enlightenment era, I suppose, like other moon gazers of the period, he just couldn't help himself. Writing to Jefferson on July 29, 1787, he said, quote, I shall never be able without seeing you in person, and perhaps not even then, to inform you how universally and circumstantially the Tartars resemble the Aborigines of America. They are the same people, the most ancient and the most numerous of any other, and had not a small sea divided them, they would all have still been known by the same name. The cloak of civilization sits as ill upon them as our American Tartars. End quote. 
This was a preoccupation of his throughout the rest of his Siberian trek. And it was present during his travels with Cook, describing, and I apologize if I get this wrong, the Nootka Nukt that he would encounter and would misname at Nootka Sound. Quote, their garments of all kinds were worn mantle-wise, and the borders of them are fringed or terminated with some particular kind of ornament. Their richest skins, when converted to garments, are edged with a great curiosity. This is nothing less than the very species of wampum, as well known on the opposite side of the continent. It is identically the same, and this wampum was not only found among the aborigines we saw on this side of the continent, but even exists unmutilated on the opposite coasts of North Asia. We saw them make use of no coverings to their feet or legs, and it is seldom that they covered their heads. When they did, it was with a kind of basket covering, made after a manner and form of the Chinese and Chinese Tartar hats. Their language is very guttural, and if it were possible to reduce it to our orthography, it would very much abound with consonants. In their manners, they resemble the other aborigines of North America. They are bold and ferocious, sly and reserved, not easily provoked, but revengeful. We saw no signs of religion or worship among them, and if they sacrifice, it is to the God of Liberty." End quote. Back in Siberia, he would draw comparisons to the mounds of the area and those of the Ohio and Mississippi River valleys. In the yurt, he would see the wigwam. For Ledyard, he felt that he'd, quote, pass from the height of civilization at Petersburg to incivilization in Siberia. I also pass from the fair European to the copper-colored Tartar. End quote. Tartar was an umbrella term at the time for Northern or Central Asian, and for Ledyard, in the Tartar face, he'd be, quote, nearer to the African than the European, end quote. As Edward Gray writes, quote, Ledyard's thinking here was constant with the more general 18th century racial map of the world, end quote. Jared Sparks may have been onto something that these loose thoughts in his journal weren't fleshed out and shouldn't be viewed as a concise scientific proclamation, but it's clear that he's part of a tradition that we are still reckoning with. For all the inquisitiveness and flashes of lucidity, like hospitality, however I have found as universal as the face of man, there is a lot of, there are no white savages and few barbarous people that are not brown or black. And insanely, and I'm going to quote here, Mr. John Hunter of London has made or is making some anatomical examinations of the head of a Negro, which is said externally, at least to resemble that of a monkey. If I could do it, I would send him back the head of a Tartar, who lives by the chase and is constantly in the society of animals, which bear high cheekbones, and perhaps, on examining such a head, he would find an anatomical resemblance to the fox, the wolf, the bear, or the dog. End quote. One of the fascinating turns of history, especially a deeper reading into a specific time period, and in contrast to the shallow observations above, is coming across moments where you, the modern reader, can marvel at how close a subject from the past is to getting it. Of course, thinking that you've got it and the future will concur is itself a fool's errand. But after dissecting our differences, Ledyard steps back and writes, quote, I am satisfied that the great general analogy and the customs of men can only be accounted for by supposing them all to compose one family, and by extending the idea and uniting customs, traditions, and history, I am satisfied that this common origin was such, or nearly, as related by Moses, and commonly believed among the nations of the earth. There is also a transportation of things on the globe that must have been produced by some 
cause equal to the effect, which is vast and curious. Whether I repose on arguments drawn from facts observed by myself or send imaginations forth to find a cause, they both declare to me a general deluge. End quote. If Ledyard would have expanded upon this, had he, spoiler alert, made it to the Pacific coast and traced the reverse course of empire carved by Lewis and Clark, it's unclear. Would he have floated the idea of Beringia, of the Bering Land Bridge? That's how I was taught that North America was peopled, the Clovis first model, though now it's clear that several migrations occurred 10 to 15,000 years ago between glacial maximums and to this writing as our climate continues to change we're more and more able to dive into the aspects of the past. And if this will bring people together, or if the drive to segment and segregate is as powerful in the future as it still is in our time, that is also unclear. Shamefully, both ledyards would be used to march across the North American continent and justify American expansion in the name of racial superiority or to sweep away those before, the lost civilizations, as the tired theory goes. We'll explore more of that as we take on the Ohio with Lewis. I'll leave the last word to Edward Gray once again. Quote, Had Ledyard been more interested in the commonalities of Imperial Russia and the new United States, their vast inland frontiers, their extraordinary ethnic and racial diversity, their large indigenous populations, their dependence on unfree labor, perhaps he would have presented a less stark contrast and would be better known. Instead of simply a purveyor of familiar, enlightened truisms, he might have been more sensitive to the perils of American expansion. He might have recognized, for instance, that far from yielding a new enlightened order in the North American backcountry, the Republican Revolution produced only more chaos of a considerably bloodier sort than anything Ledger saw on the frontiers of the Russian Empire. And, as it eventually would for Jefferson, this might have left him less sanguine about the sentimentalist view of human nature. But in the end, Ledyard was limited by what he thought he knew about society and government. Little of this prepared him for a world of independent citizens who defined themselves less by enlightened values than by convenient rubrics of whiteness." End quote. For now, we return to Ledyard piecing together the world that he sees from the place from which he came from. Leaving Barnall with a mail carrier, he heads to Tomsk. After 10 days, delayed as he was by the mail, Ledyard arrives in Irkutsk around a celebration for Catherine II's 25 years on the throne. In addition to the peopling of the Americas, Ledyard wrote expansively on the Russian government, or lack thereof, the further one got from the capital cities, and how its disruptive populations fared in comparison to the rational, enlightened rule, the United States being the box standard prior to the French Revolution still two years away. He declared, if Mercury was the god of theft among the ancients, the Russians ought to enroll him in their mythology. At some level, it must be said, Edward Gray writes again, quote, Ledyard's perspective on the Russian Empire echoes more general criticisms of the Anglo-European Ancien Regime. Luxury, corruption, moral decay, a peasantry as debased as its leaders. All of this can be found in 18th century British social commentary about Britain and especially England proper, end quote. As autumn neared and delays piled upon delays, Ledyard, along with Adam Laxman, a Finnish-Swedish soldier who, four years from now, would escort two Japanese castaways back to Japan and became one of the first subjects of the Russian Empire to set foot in Japan, 
though his mission to open the country would fail, saw the Lena River as a way to close the gap on their next destination, Yakutsk. On August 29th, staring down the gentle rapids at the 1,400 miles of ribbon that awaits, Ledyard undoubtedly felt back at home. Unlike Mackenzie on the Parsnip or Lewis and Clark on the Marias, the decision to float through autumn to close the gap was much easier to make. He'd lament the decision to walk so much of the journey, highlighted daily as he sailed east, watching the landscape shift instead of feeling every rock and crevice. If he thought of the failed attempts to sell the Pacific, or the ships plying the open oceans at the very moment he and Laxman jumped into their boat to cut across a chunk of the continent, we get very little. As the Lena dips south before arching due north, at one point Ledyard would have angled up directly with Jean-Francois de Gallup, Comte de la Peru, I hope I got that close, who had left France exactly two years before and was plying the Sea of Japan. He had been repelled by the Strait of Tarte, a narrow divide between Russian mainland and Sakhalin Island, turning around and crossing between Sakhalin and the Japanese island of Hokkaido, in a strait still bearing his name today. This winter in Petropavlovsk would feel quite different from the previous one in California. Mm-hmm. 